2: My only
3: object in
1: being here
3: is to try and get at the truth.
1: Where shall I go? What shall I do? He's looking at you, kid. Frankly, my dear, I don't give a damn. could have been a contender. Fasten your state. I could have been somebody. They can only kill me with a golden bullet. What have I done? Call me Mr. Tibbs. I'm going to make him an awful All real, men. Love is... is Love. Too weak a word. for back. I, I, I loathe you. No, I
3: loathe I, I you. you
1: I, I, I did as he saw. Don't
3: let me...
0: If there's something wrong, it's wrong with the instructions. This ain't reality TV!
2: Respect it! validate it! Remember that's what you told me! It's time,
3: Robbie! Welcome to the Next Best Picture Podcast.
2: And the Oscar
1: goes to Parasite.
3: Hello everyone, welcome to episode 204 of the Next Best Picture Podcast. I am your host, Matt Negley, at time of recording 11.07 a.m. on July 26, 2020. Here to join me today, I have Michael Schwartz. Hello everyone. And Josh Parham. Hello, hello. And that is it. That is all we have because nobody really gives a shit about movies right now. It's it appears because <laughs> there's no movies to talk about. <laughs> Everything just keeps on moving. We, like it's like we got nothing to look forward to. Well, you know, at this point, it's like we should just pump the brakes, you know, take a break, call it quits for the podcast, maybe for a few weeks. No. Well, well, we got stuff to
0: talk about. There's always movies releasing, and we're always watching stuff, so... (laughs) Yeah! Who am
3: I kidding? Come on, come on. Yeah, you're right, you're right. All right. So, (laughs) listen, let's get into it. I mean, we have a lot of stuff to indeed talk about. You're totally right about that. And even though it does not tie necessarily to theatrical releases, I have to believe that we are getting closer at some point. Um, AMC has uh, confirmed that they are attempting to reopen in August, and they're holding pretty firm to that idea, so... Who knows maybe August will finally be our time <laughs> we can stop speculating and stop talking and we can finally have a world where there are theaters to go to even though we all know Michael Schwartz will definitely not be going to those theaters <laughs> <laughs> other than uh, shifting release dates uh, there's a lot of other news uh, this week in regards to casting decisions um, announcements for new projects. Uh, that are really, really exciting. Uh, We also had uh, some news regarding TIFF, which is still scheduled to take place, unlike uh, the Telluride Film Festival, which uh, did get canceled, as we talked about on last week's show. And also, uh, we're gonna discuss the trailer for Sputnik, um, which is a Russian sci-fi horror film uh, that was supposed to premiere at the Tribeca uh, Film Festival earlier this year. And we'll go over the polls. We'll answer some questions from the fans. Yeah, I guess you're right. I guess there is some stuff to talk about. Yeah, it'll be a fun show. (laughs) So, why don't we uh,
1: first start off with what people have been watching at home. Michael, we'll start off with you. What do you got? Oh, well, just like last week, you know, I doubled my totals from last week, and if you remember, it was zero then, so. Nobody gives a shit about movies. 2020, the story (laughs) of the year.
3: Gosh. Josh, what about you? Well, I did
0: end up uh, seeing a few things this week. Um, I did see Radioactive, which we have a podcast review of it, so you can listen to that to get my full thoughts. Um, was it the biggest fan of it? I thought it had some nice performances here or there, some good moments. But overall, just really couldn't pick a tone to be and was overall a very frustrating watch. Which is sort of a shame, because I like all the people involved, but it just never really came together as a good movie, sadly. Uh, and then after that, I did see The Rental, which, speaking of kind of bad movies, actually, uh, I did not really like The Rental, unfortunately. I really hated like every character in it, and that was the biggest issue that I had. I just could not connect with anybody in this film. And the actual horror in it just felt so pedestrian and kind of lame that and that's not even most of the movie too it's like at the very end so that was another one that i was actually sort of looking forward to based on the trailer but the finished product i thought was very underwhelming and i really didn't like it
3: yeah yeah i was disappointed by the film as well i actually thought it started off strong but then it just kind of had no point no meaning i couldn't really walk away with anything and it just transformed into a generic slasher horror film with no commentary or anything to say, really. I, I think I think Franco shows some promise behind the camera more than his brother, at least. Yeah. You know, other than that, I yeah, there wasn't really much to take away from it. No, it, it felt like most of that movie was about wanting to build up the
0: characters so that you would theoretically care about what happens to them at the end. But I just did not care about them they were so horrible to each other that i just really was not invested in most of that time and when it does really get into the horror stuff it just felt like as you said matt generic and kind of
3: lame and was not interesting at all yeah yeah I, i definitely feel that anything else or uh
0: well there is one other thing that i did see it's not a newer movie it's an older film but uh i had actually never seen it before it was a big blind spot for me
3: And that was The Last Temptation of Christ. Oh. Yeah, had never seen it. Oscar nominee for Best Director for Martin Scorsese. Nice. And uh, Defoe, who just
0: recently had a birthday, too. So thought it was a good occasion to finally check it out. And, you know, Matt, I got to say, I think that over the years, this movie probably was a little overhyped for me. And I did like it, but
3: I wasn't quite blown away by it as I thought I would be. I think it definitely made more of a splash and created more conversation upon its release. But I would agree that I don't think the film has aged well.
0: No, I think that for me, it is too long. And some of the casting decisions are really bad.
3: Harvey (laughs) Keitel. I mean,
0: and uh, I mean, um, even Harry Dean Stanton, too. I didn't think he was very good either. Even though Mm -hmm. I like his scene, I didn't really like him in it. But There are good elements in it. It is a Scorsese film after all, so I would still recommend it. But it didn't quite captivate me as much as I wanted it to. But I still thought it was good.
3: Yeah, I mean, if you were to ask me now uh, to rank Scorsese's three uh, religious epics, I would say it's Silence at number one, Kundun at number two, and Last Temptation of Christ at number three. And that, that even surprises me. Uh, because I remember the first time I saw *Last Temptation of Christ*, and I remember liking it as well, but not loving it. And then I thought if I watched it again a couple years later, maybe I would feel differently about it. But it actually was worse, in my opinion. Yeah. yeah. And it's not—it's still not like a bad movie. It's very bold, and you know, it's definitely doing some very interesting things. But yeah, I would not rank it as top tier, Scorsese by any means.
0: And um, absolutely, I think one issue that movies about jesus always suffer from is that that is such a well-known story that it's really difficult i think to bring something truly innovative to that and i think this movie definitely does the best that it can of really bringing the humanity to him but it still has the basic like structure that we all know and i think that it doesn't really make those parts that interesting. It, it's, it's still a good movie, and I would still recommend it to people, but it really wasn't the masterpiece that I
3: kind of thought it was going to be, and that was a little disappointing. Yeah, yeah. All right, well, for myself, I saw a lot of movies this week that I actually cannot talk about, which is upsetting. <laughs> yeah, kind of same. <laughs> yeah, I, I did watch The Rental, uh, which we uh, just discussed. Um, I watched Amulet. Uh, which I thought was yeah, thematically interesting uh, with some inspired visuals, but the pieces just didn't come together to create like a whole that I felt really good about in the end. Yeah, it's kind of muddled in its themes, I thought. Yeah, and that ending was a trip, to say the least. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> we we, we uh, rewatched The Fury of Everything for our 2014 retrospective. There's a podcast review on that you all can check out. Um Radioactive, as Josh said before, podcast review available for that as well. And um, last night, I, I I had started watching this a little while ago, and I fell asleep. And I always meant to uh, come back to it, but um, I, I've been having some issues with my Blu-ray player uh, as of late. But I finally, finally fixed it and found a solution. And uh, so I popped in uh, Diabolic uh, The 1955 uh, film that inspired a great deal, many horror films. Um, It's Criterion release, which, you know, as people who follow me on social media know, I'm all about that Criterion collection. And I had never seen this one. Um, It was so tense in the final 15 minutes. I legitimately thought I was going to have a heart attack. And for a film made in 1955, I found that to be so, so impressive. And the ending twist... Was so good that I immediately wanted to go back and rewatch the entire movie. And I miss movies like that. I miss movies like, you know, The Sixth Sense or Usual Suspects, you know, where like the ending to the movie would just make you want to go back and rewatch the whole thing to try and piece together and figure out where the clues were and such. But God, it was so, so cool to see a movie uh, from this era do something like that. It was really awesome.
0: Yeah, that's a really, really good movie. And I actually remember the first time I ever saw it, I had literally no idea what it was about. I just went to see it, and a friend of mine recommended it to me. And I went to see it without any knowledge or context about what it was about. I didn't even know it was a foreign film, really. So... that is the best way that you can really see that movie. If you
3: can have no information on it, it's so good. There's even a disclaimer at the end of the movie telling people not to spoil the movie for others, which I once again was like, oh, my God, for the 50s, this is amazing, you know, that they would have stuff like that. And a heavy
0: influence on probably what Hitchcock would do later with Psycho, which makes sense because I think Hitchcock
3: wanted to remake that movie, but he couldn't get the rights to it. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So, interesting week all around for uh movie watching. I'm definitely going to try and do um a little bit more uh this week. Unfortunately, like I said before, a lot of the new releases uh that I watched um can't talk about them yet. Can't even hint at them. So, uh we'll uh, we'll, we'll talk about them a little bit later after some embargoes uh, lift.
2: Hello, everyone. This is JD from the In Session Film Podcast. Each week, we review the latest from Hollywood, California. Well, yes, Brendan. We also give top three lists. Okay, yeah. Thanks again, Brendan. Additionally, you can hear us talk other movie news, trailers, varying movie series, or other interesting film-related topics, and even rants and raves of the week. That's correct, Brendan. On top of our main show, every Friday, you can also hear our extra film podcasts. Good job, Brendan. Thank you, JD. It's my goal to make you proud. You're the father after all. (laughs) Yes, and I'm very proud. Uh, You can listen to the In Session Film podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, or at InSessionFilm.com. Brendan, will you please let me complete just one? Nope. Oh, for heaven's sake. Listen to the In Session Film podcast every Monday and Friday. Subscribe today and hear me verbally beat JD like a Cherokee drum no 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 that's not ca- how this works sir hey no, you, you, no, no, no. you go cry at midnight special again okay, oh, okay. that's what you're I, I good will. for i will you know what and i'll do it while pummeling you i'll do both at the same time how are you gonna pummel me yeah i, I don't, I don't how buy it works. that that's just how it works <laughs> and
3: we're not gonna be able to talk about uh, quite a great deal many movies uh for quite some time after some announcements uh this past week so man this was this was deflating this was a buzzkill This hurt. It was pretty rough. Yeah, this was a blow. Uh, So Tenet Tenet was moved. We talked about the possibility of it uh, last week. And once again, um, Warner Brothers pushed back the release of it indefinitely this time. No new release date. No two week push. None of that. Just taken off the calendar completely. They're still committing to a 2020 release. They did say that. When though, no? who knows? Because honestly, as we discussed on last week's show, it was starting to get very embarrassing. Uh, the two week constant move, and it was just becoming like a reoccurring joke. Where now, at least, you know they could you know keep the cards close to their chest, look at the uh, landscape a little bit later, and also too, I think we have to really just kind of prepare for the fact that. Foreign markets are going to see this film first before um, the states do. And more than likely, a lot of us are probably going to get spoiled by the movie online somewhere. Well, that's our punishment for not getting this thing under control. (laughs) I agree. I agree. And as we talked about on last week's show, Tenet was the key. If Tenet moved... Everything fell. The dominoes just completely have fallen at this point. (laughs) And Tenet did start this ripple effect. Uh, We got announcements from Disney. Uh, We got announcements from Paramount. Everything just started moving after this announcement. So here's what we know now. We know that Mulan has been wiped off of the calendar completely. Uh, We don't know when we're going to see this movie. And also ditto to Wes Anderson's The French Dispatch, which is very interesting because not only was that supposed to premiere at the Cannes Film Festival, it was also supposed to then premiere at the Telluride uh, Film Festival, which was canceled. So one would imagine that it would have popped up at another film festival potentially before its release, but nope, just scrapped completely. And the reason why I find this to be so head-scratching is because other films like Death on the Nile shifted two weeks uh, to October 23rd personal history of David Copperfield also only moved two weeks to August 28th. We'll see. We'll see how that goes. Uh, Antlers is now slated for February 19th of 2021, which still puts it in uh, a qualifying uh, release slot, according to the Academy's uh, rules. And Ridley Scott's, the last duel was pushed a whole year out to October of uh, 2021. But, Why the French Dispatch just being taken off the calendar completely? That makes no sense to me.
1: Well, that actually does make sense to me, because when you look at how these cases are skyrocketing nationwide, AMC and Regal can say that they're going to reopen next month all they want, I'll believe it when I see it, but the French Dispatch is not a movie that would play at many AMCs and Regals. That's more of your art house independent title, even though it's from Fox Searchlight, it would be, you know at a lot of the smaller theaters. Searchlight Pictures. No, that's Correction. Right. Searchlight Pictures. Oh my goodness, it's <laughs> like I'm living in pre-COVID times. <laughs> uh, yes, yeah, Searchlight Pictures now. But uh, my thought with that is that they don't want to put that out on streaming. That's the movie that they want to save for the theater. And the type of audience that's going to go see that in a the theater is also the type of audience that's, you know, probably smart enough to know that they shouldn't be in a theater until they have, you know, some sort of safety measures or a vaccine available. So I think, you know, they want to save it for the best circumstances. And if that means waiting a year, it means waiting a year. And I think everyone's going to enjoy seeing it on a big screen when it's safe to do so.
3: But why, I guess what I'm asking is, why does the French Dispatch get that kind of a decision made on it? But the personal history of David Copperfield, which one could argue has a similar crossover audience with the French Dispatch,
1: moves two weeks to August. Yeah, that was strange to me. And that's a movie that I think they should just put on Hulu and call it a day. I don't know why they keep trying to make theatrical a thing for Copperfield. But, you know, maybe by moving it, that's just their way of, you know, pulling a tenant, if you will. Just keep pushing it until they finally decide they can't do it. But I think with one, you have what would have been a large Oscar contender. And the other was just, you know, a summer release that they're not ready to give up hope on yet. But the... Warning signs are there. And we also don't know what's going on with Soul either uh, because
3: there was no announcement made about that. It looks like that's still sticking to its uh, November release
1: at this time. So they say. I've heard rumblings that it's going to follow Onward and just go to Disney+, Plus, even though Onward did play theaters for a short time. Disney also made other changes to its release schedule.
3: um, Hilariously, Uh, Avatar 2 has been moved uh, from December of 2021 to December of 2022. And when you look at, like, kind of the release schedule of the uh, Avatar films, I just find it funny that the final Avatar movie now has a release date that's going to be 29 years since the release of the first film.
1: (laughs) (laughs) You know, it just gives me more time to learn Na'vi before I go to see it so I don't have to read the subtitles.
3: Seriously. Star Wars also got impacted as well. And then um, Top Gun... And A Quiet Place Part 2, both of them moved to 2021 at this point. Quiet Place Part 2, April 23rd, Top Gun Maverick, July 2nd. Those films will no longer be in the Oscar uh, conversation for the 2020-2021 season anymore as a result.
0: I mean, not surprising considering, as you said, when Tenet decided to take itself off the map, that was the ripple effect that –
3: uh, went through all these other decisions. And I will fully admit that we put out our first Oscar predictions this past week in above the line categories only. And yeah, I think it was a little uh, a little early. You know, normally, we always release our first predictions in July. first week usually. Uh, so that this way we're at like the midway point of the year and it makes the most sense. We waited until the last week of July uh, to do this or last two weeks, rather. And even then, it was like, well, now that tenant's been moved, and definitely, does that mean it's gonna be like not coming out? Like, what's happening? And so, all of a sudden, it's like, even in above the line categories, we kind of have to rethink and move things around on a consistent basis uh every week, it seems like. And that's why we didn't do below the line categories precisely for this reason. We probably would have had a Quiet Place Part Two, Top Gun Maverick, uh listed in some of the below the line categories. And we would have to redo all of our predictions uh all over again. So I think we're gonna hold off on below the line predictions until we get to August. And you know, if AMC does reopen, I, I think that'll probably be uh the time. But if they don't, I would say, um, you know, you guys can expect our end of year predictions. I'm sorry, our below the line predictions, probably end of August, I would say.
0: Yeah, things are changing very rapidly. It seems like every single day. So it's very difficult to kind of keep up with that because the movie that you put in there, you have no idea if it's going to stay in that spot or get moved again or get taken
3: off the map completely. So it's. Very, very difficult right now. You know who's not uh, sweating about this right now and is having a grand all-time? Who's that? Netflix. Oh, oh yeah. <laughs> we got our first look this week at The Trial of the Chicago 7, Aaron Sorkin's directorial follow-up to Molly's Game. And I have to admit, after reading the piece in Vanity Fair about this movie, I made a, I made a change. I put it... I mean, Netflix still is... You know, the number one, number two for Best Picture Frontrunners, in my opinion. But I put Trial of the Chicago 7, actually, as my early frontrunner for uh, Best Picture. Oh, yeah. Based on the material, based on the release uh, of it happening uh, this time in October, which, you know, as we talked about um, on a previous episode, the success of the Trial of the Chicago 7 in this upcoming award season, I think, is going to have to do very much probably with the election that we have coming in November. However... After reading the piece, it does seem like the movie will fit either context depending on what happens at, in the election. Um, it, it seems like it'll just be a movie that will be relevant despite uh, what the mindset of the country is. And that, that only solidified it in my mind as the frontrunner.
0: The only thing that holds me back just a little bit is that sorkin is directing and i would need to see like a huge step up from his last directorial effort for me to like really be on board with that maybe winning best picture i mean people really like Molly's game if i'm not mistaken didn't they I mean, they liked it, but I don't remember them anybody saying like, "Oh, what a wonderful directorial achievement from Aaron Sorkin." This is what no, we're no, for. Like, it was it was solid, it was respectable, but that's not enough to like make you a serious player in that realm. And I think that if you're going to win Best Picture, at the very least, you need to have your director be taken seriously as somebody who could maybe even win Director himself. Maybe not, you know, a slam dunk, but be in that conversation and. I just don't see that from Molly's game. It could very well happen, but I'm just saying from the evidence that I've seen so far, I just need to really be uh, shown that Sorkin can get into that
3: realm. Or it could pull an Argo and maybe not even get nominated for director at all and still win Best Picture. You know, we weren't saying Best Picture after Dumb and Dumber, were we? I mean, that is true. (laughs) So a couple of different things uh, to take away also from this piece um, is the cast, right? They had a lot of information about the cast of this movie. I know a lot of people uh, quickly uh, went to go shit on Jeremy Strong for his, quote unquote, method acting. Uh, But it wasn't the kind of method acting that we've heard about before from certain actors that are using it to be um, like an excuse to be an asshole on set. It just seems like this is a guy who, you know, he was an assistant to Daniel Day-Lewis. He takes the craft very, very seriously. And until uh, other words says otherwise from his uh, co-stars, you know, let's just assume that the guy is, you know, in good standing and it's all well and good. And he gets tear gas sprayed in his face, you know, for the uh, for the shot. You know, it's it's fine. (laughs) He's not hurting other people. He's just hurting himself, you know, whatever. (laughs) But that was kind of like my big takeaway uh, right off the bat was uh, Jeremy Strong, I think, is looking like he might be positioned uh, for Best Supporting Actor, where Sacha Baron Cohen and Eddie Redmayne, I feel like, reading the piece, they they feel like
1: they could be potentially the two leads of the film. Actually, from what I took away, you know, just reading about that, mm-hmm. it seems like Eddie Redmayne might be, you know, our way into the movie, whereas Sacha Baron Cohen and Jeremy Strong and, you know, the people in the courtroom like Mark Rylance and Frank Langella, They might be our supporting plays where Eddie Redmayne is the one who guides us through. And I might be totally mistaken, but that was my takeaway from the piece.
3: I mean, it makes sense because Eddie Redmayne is the biggest name of the cast. So it would make sense to have him uh, get top billing, I think.
0: Yeah, this is going to be the challenge for this movie because whenever you have something with a huge cast like this and you need to divvy up
3: the attention that needs to be paid to each one of them, that's always very difficult. And I'm all here to see Mark Rylance get another uh, nomination following Bridge of Spies. I'd be I'd be there
1: for it. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And someone like Sasha Baron Cohen. I know people still think of him as like, you know, being in the Boer at Bruno dictator mold. But he's really, you know, proven his acting chops over the years. He's a nominee for acting. I mean, sorry, a, nom- a nominee for writing. Should have been a nominee for acting. Absolutely should have been a nominee for acting back in the day. But, you know, he's worked with Tim Burton, Martin Scorsese, Tom Hooper. You know, he's working with people who are in the bubble, you know, people who Oscar responds to now Aaron Sorkin. He's a great actor. And I think, you know, this sounds like a really baity part. He's playing uh, A.B. Hoffman.
3: Yeah. So for now, I have Sasha Baron Cohen strong and Riley Lance in my supporting actor predictions. Ten slots, might I add. So they're kind of like scattered and all over the place. I have Eddie Redmayne in lead for the moment, uh, but, you know, it's like, who knows? We're going to wait to get further clarification on this. I mean, we still don't know what's going on with Delroy Lindo and Defy Bloods yet. So,
0: yeah,
3: this is definitely going to be a head scratcher for a little while, I think, until, um, you know, further notice. But there uh, was some more information uh, regarding uh, the release of the film. Um, we're going to be getting this in October. So we'll be getting this actually uh, pretty early, October 16th, which does feel like it's right around the corner. Um, However, you know, the question then becomes in a extended year like this, where January and February release films are going to count uh, towards uh, this year's award season, you know, is October too early? Yeah, it's like an August release now. I mean, yeah, that's how you got to look at it, right?
0: Yeah, I mean, but we still don't know what's really gonna be released in that period of january and february and because this is the first time they're doing it i don't know if maybe there will be still a tendency for people to just look at the calendar year and just see the extra two months is like oh yeah that's was just also some other stuff that came out. It we're in unprecedented times, so it's difficult to judge what exactly people are going to do
3: this time around. Well, Netflix has said that they will not be going to any of the film festivals this year, which I think is a smart move. They already have the platform. It might seem honestly like it, it, the perception would be that it would that it would be unfair, and it's almost like they're strong strong arming the other contenders out if they were to take that route. So I'm glad that they aren't because. Honestly, I think that's just a very compassionate and gracious move on their part uh, towards the other uh, studios that are struggling to find ways to get their film seen right now. So, yeah. In regards to that, you know, Tiff, uh, we had some uh, news about that this week. So, we know that um, the opening night film will be David Burns' American Utopia, directed by Spike Lee, uh, which is going to be uh, an HBO uh, release uh, of the Broadway uh, show. It's like a filmed version, kind of like what we saw with Hamilton, uh, which I, I don't think that that's a mistake. I think that's definitely deliberate on their part, trying to capitalize lately both on Hamilton's success and also Spike Lee's success with Defy Five
1: Bloods recently.
3: Oh, absolutely. Yeah.
1: Yeah, and from what I heard, it was a phenomenal show. I didn't get a chance to see it on Broadway, so this is exciting. I'm looking forward to it.
3: So we also know that uh, TIFF will be uh, basically digital for press uh, online, and we know that based on uh, some communication that went out that the uh, restrictions for press this year are going to be uh, tighter than ever, uh, probably because they don't want to jam their servers up when they try to do these online screenings. If you have hundreds of thousands of people trying to log in at the same time, uh, that could create some disruption and issues for them. Uh, We also know, too, that some of the other films that are going to be uh, playing there right now, uh, we have Francis Lee's Ammonite, uh, which he's not happy that that film's getting a digital release on a small screen. He really wanted that to be shown on a big screen. Um, we also have uh, Thomas Vintenberg's Another Round, starring Mads Mikkelsen, uh, Ricky Staub's Concrete Cowboy, Nicholas uh, Peretta's Fauna, Ronaldo Marcus Green's Good Joe, uh, Good Joe Bell, Suzanne Linden's Spring Blossom, and Halle Berry's directorial debut Bruised, as well as Naomi Ka- uh, Kawase's True Mothers. So. TIFF definitely sounds like it's not going to be the year of big hits like Joker or Knives Out, but it's still going to be TIFF, you know, with those independent uh, selections, the foreign language uh, selections. And it'll be it'll be a festival at the end of the day. You know, it's like, yeah, it may not have those very, very big movies, but it's still a film festival. And at this point, I'm just like, give me anything seriously.
0: And what a nice chance to discover something that maybe you weren't aware of before. And to me, that's always the beauty of film festivals, that, yes, it's always great to see the big premieres and, you know, the the giant Oscar contenders and all that. But I also love finding out something that I wasn't aware of before. And maybe this is the only time I ever had to see it. And in this time of, you know, COVID that we're in right now, that's forcing these festivals to program slightly differently. I think that's an amazing opportunity to discover something that previously wasn't really known to a lot of people. And I find that
3: element of it to be encouraging, despite us not having some of the bigger players. Absolutely. Yeah, definitely agreed. So in terms of uh, shifting release dates, uh, let's head on over to the polls here, uh, because this week uh, for (laughs) this week's poll, I literally put it together for Russell Crowe for Unhinged. And then I find out like just a few moments, like less than two minutes after posting the poll uh, that the release date for Unhinged has moved from July 31st to an unknown date in August. So. If that's not an example of the times that we're living in right now, I don't know what it is. But the poll is still standing. It's still up. And we're asking everyone this week, which is their favorite Russell Crowe performance? You can select up to three. I would like to go around here. And if either one of you say Lee Miserables, I will kick you off the podcast forever. <laughs> Josh, favorite Russell Crowe performance?
0: Um, well, I know that certainly like LA Confidential and The Insider and Gladiator are going to be very popular. So those are kind of givens. I'm going to pick something that I don't think many people will name. I still stand by that his performance in Body of Lies is one of my favorites. And the movie itself isn't that great, but I think that he in that, movie is just giving such a fun performance it's like one of the few times i've seen him just do like big character actor work because you know he gained weight he puts on the southern accent and i just find him to be so entertaining and it's not like one of his self-serious roles too and uh like i said the movie itself not that great but i really do love his performance in it
1: michael Yeah, so my favorite, uh, not really a surprise, because I think a lot of people consider this to be among his best work. My favorite is Gladiator, his Oscar winning performance.
3: Yeah, he definitely radiates uh, a lot of charisma in that role and commands the screen with his presence for sure.
1: Yeah, and back in the day when I was first getting into Oscar history and learning all the winners, I saw that he had won Best Actor for Gladiator after I knew that Gladiator won Best Picture. And I looked at it and I'm like, really? He won the best actor for that? I hadn't seen the movie yet. I'm thinking, oh, what's so special about that performance? He's just sort of like fighting the whole time. But, you know, I couldn't be more mistaken. It's such powerful work. And, you know, the character itself and what he brings to the role of Maximus and his strength and seeing it in between. Uh, the Insider and then A Beautiful Mind. I think it's just the pinnacle of his career, and I'm glad he won the Oscar for it. It's just incredible.
3: Yeah, he definitely had a lot of goodwill, I think, with LA Confidential and The Insider leading up to the release of Gladiator and also helped, too, that Gladiator was the best picture uh, frontrunner because that whole award season, he didn't really win a lot of precursors. I think he won Critics' Choice and two other critics' groups along the way, but that was pretty much it. A lot of people were thinking that Tom Hanks might take another one for uh, Castaway or just really somebody else in general. So, I mean, if you watch that Oscar clip of uh, when Russell wins, he is so shocked. He cannot believe it you know, in that moment that it's actually happening. Um, but yeah, I mean, I agree with you, Michael. That was like kind of like the peak era was like the 1999 till to like mid 2000s, I would say was like that peak Russell Crowe time where it was just like leading man project after leading man project. So many great performances crammed into that small period of time. And lately, to uh, Josh's point, it feels like he's doing a lot more supporting work than anything. He's not really, I don't know, like so much like a bankable leading star anymore. I really, really liked him in uh, things like, Josh said, like Body of Lies or boy erased or and I know he's like a co-lead in this but something like the nice guys where you know once again it's not like a leading man um performance but you know he's doing more character work and you know he's uh, co-starring with Ryan Gosling in that but I think my favorite kind of piggybacking off of what you just said there Michael I think that one of the best displays of Russell Crowe's like screen presence and charisma was his work in James Mangold's 310 to Yuma. Love his performance in that too, yeah. Right? He's like the winking devil that you grow to love so much so that by the end of the movie he like just fully transforms from villain to hero and he gets away at the end, which is fantastic. <laughs> and you're like kind of rooting for that to happen a little bit. Like you really don't want Like, you want Dan to succeed, Dan being Christian Bale, but at the same time, you don't want him to succeed in getting him over to uh, Yuma because, you know, you just have grown to like Crow so much. Ah, man, yeah, that's a a good, that's a great Western. I love that film. So I'll go to bat for that one. Head on over to the polls page, nextbestpicture.com. Tell us your favorite Russell Crowe performance. And uh, for last week's poll, uh, we asked everyone which is their favorite female-led biopic, And we did this for Radioactive, which released this weekend on Amazon Prime. So definitely check that one out, starring Rosamund Pike. Oh, man, a lot of close calls here, a lot of ties. Let's take a look. Number 10 is What's Love Got to Do With It? All right. Number 9 is Christine, starring Rebecca Hall. Still haven't seen that. I'm excited to catch up with it soon. She should have been in the Best Actress Conversation that year. I mean, it's such a good performance from her. Oh, she's great in general. I love Rebecca Hall. Yeah. Number eight, Marion cote Oscar-winning performance as Edith Pia in La Vienne Rose. Not shocking at all. Number seven, the first time, not the second time, that Cate Blanchett played Elizabeth in Elizabeth.
1: I mean it's sort of hard yeah, to deny
0: at least that performance.
1: Yeah, the performance itself, the movie is not anything to write home about, even with its best picture nomination. Number six. The sound of music, Michael. You know, I'm always happy to see that one. Classic. Number five Hidden Figures. Mm. Love and we learned this yeah. week that Disney Disney Theatrical is working on a Broadway musical of Hidden Figures. Not surprising. Number four. Aaron Brockovich. Another great one. Yeah, that is
0: actually a really good movie. And I feel like for a while people were kind of shitting on it a little bit. But it seems like it's gotten a reevaluation from people. And I'm very happy about
1: that. Number three. Can you ever forgive me? Hmm. Okay. That is really good. I'm surprised to see it so high, but it's a welcome surprise. Number two. Jackie.
0: Oh,
3: well I, I'm sorry, Michael, for, for you, but I love that movie. So Same much. here. <laughs> I think I vo- I think I voted for it actually. And number one is I Tanya. Really? Yep. With twelve percent of the vote, uh, which was almost double what the second place uh got. I mean, there's a lot of Margot Robbie fans out there, and that's a
0: movie that I have very mixed feelings about and not all of them are positive, but I certainly see why people do respond to that movie very much. And there are certainly things about it that are very well done. I don't think personally it comes together all that well in in the end, but I get why people do have such passionate feelings for it.
3: Well, thank you, everyone that voted on uh, last week's poll.
1: Let's take a look now at uh, our trailer for this week. Oh, hey, Matt. Mm hmm. Before we jump to the trailer, I just have to say we have some very sad breaking news as we're recording this.
3: No. Oh, no. Should I brace myself?
1: Uh, Yeah, probably. A little bit. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, We are sad to report that at age 104, Olivia de Havilland has passed away. Oh, no. Yes. Oh, no. Nice long life. Two time Oscar winner. Our last link, I believe, to that golden era of the 30s and 40s and, you know, I think it was her and Kirk Douglas, and we lost both of them this year. And we just need to take a moment to recognize, you know, it's gone now. Our connections are gone.
3: (sighs) I, I feel like, is it just me, or are we losing important people in 2020, like every single day? Every day. It's
1: horrible. It's yeah, th-
3: this week, in particular, was pretty rough. <laughs> you know, it's like they, you know, you know how they say sometimes like deaths will happen in threes? It feels like they're happening in thirteens. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah. But seriously, uh, on screen legend, uh, Gone with the Wind, five time Oscar uh, nominee the Harris I mean oh my god I just watched that for the first time recently amazing
0: yeah it's yeah.
3: A, a heavy loss oh definitely. man and you're right Michael like the last surviving stars from the golden age of uh, Hollywood I mean I think she's like I listen I know that there are still people around from the golden age of Hollywood but uh, she, I, she was probably
1: the biggest absolutely yeah, uh, like I said, her and Kirk Douglas, you know, he just passed in February. And then after we lost her, I, I don't know who else is left.
3: Uh, there, there's like a whole article, uh, like a list of them, uh, you know, but a lot of them are like producers or just people that didn't have like as big of careers as some of these other titans in the industry did. I mean, you also have like, you know, you you also have like Angela Lansbury. She's still around.
1: Yeah, well, Angela Lansbury, absolutely. She got her nomination in the 40s and, you know, continued on for years. Norman Lloyd is 105 and still going. But, you know, of those big marquee stars from the 30s even. Yeah. You know, she was the last of them, I believe, unless I'm totally forgetting someone. I I think she was it of those major A-list names. Yeah, it's, it's really something. And 104, this is not a surprise, but we still have to recognize the significance of that.
0: Yeah, and you know what? Respect to anybody who sues Ryan Murphy.
1: <laughs> uh, you know what? She, and what's really nice is she lived long enough to see Gone with the Wind, added to, removed, and added back to HBO Max. So there's always that. Yeah. <laughs> she lived long enough to know what an HBO Max
0: was. Like. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs>
1: So rest in peace, Olivia De Havilland. You legend, and go watch her movies because she was really one of a kind.
3: Now I gotta transition over to the trailer. Um, all right. So she would have loved for us to talk about Sputnik. Yeah. So let's talk about Sputnik. Um. Russian science fiction horror film directed by Igor Abramenko. Uh, this is a feature directorial debut. It was meant to uh, debut at the Tribeca Film Festival. It's actually going to uh, be released on VOD now um, on August 14th. Let's take a look at the trailer for this one. <laughs>
1: Семирадов моя фамилия. Требуется ваша консультация. Зачем они мне не задержались? Можете объяснить?
0: Почему от меня по-прежнему все скрывают? Мы рискуем жизнью человека. Герой Советского Союза. Если
1: герой, значит готов ко всему. В том числе и пожертвовать собой. Надо было мне сразу вам все рассказать.
3: <laughs> Josh, I immediately thought of you, actually, because I was like, oh, if this doesn't scream alien vibes, I don't know what else does. And for the record, the trailer for this was so impressive to me that I, I, I'm i like, I'm ready because just I, I'm all right. Full disclosure here. I'm just getting really, really tired of some of these VOD generic indie films that don't have these elaborate sets, the CGI, the makeup, like, and I'm ready to great, great on a curve here. Like I'm ready to just, you know, be warm and welcome and not crap all over the movie. I just want something that has a little bit of spectacle to it at this point. You know what I mean?
0: Yeah. And also, like you said, Matt, it, you do get some alien vibes from this. I've spoken before about how, like, schlocky sci-fi creature features are really my bag. Like, I eat those movies up. I love them. Even the terrible ones I can find some enjoyment in. And you're right. In a time right now where a lot of the stuff that we have been seeing going to streaming hasn't really been spectacle, it is sort of nice to get something that is a little bit in that realm and can just be fun. You know, I'm all for just... Kind of kicking back and just having a fun good time with the uh, entertaining sci-fi horror movie
3: yeah and the reviews for it were pretty solid as well some strong notices all around and you know at the end of the day it's not an american release it's a uh foreign release from russia and you know that gives me some confidence here that you know it's not going to fall into the traditional american you know pitfalls of genre uh blockbuster storytelling so, yeah, I, I feel pretty good about this one. I mean, even if it is just you a generic carbon copy of Alien, like I said before, I'm just starving for any kind of content outside of the traditional uh, small, small time, like indie type of film. I'm just I'm like, I'm ready for anything at this point.
0: <laughs> and even if it does kind of feel very similar to alien to be honest with you that criticism never really bothers me because even alien is ripping off you know the sci-fi movies from the 50s so it's not like that movie was completely original either so like if it is seeming like it's being a little bit too close to it i don't really care i just want to see uh, an entertaining monster movie
1: michael i'm waiting for your thoughts ah <laughs> oh, sputnik 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 uh Yeah, this seems like a good movie for you and Josh Parham. And I hope you both enjoy it. (laughs) This is not a Schwartz film. (laughs) It could be a
3: Schwartz film. All right, so that'll do it there for uh, Sputnik, as I said before, releasing on August 14th, 2020. Was The
2: Quiet Place inspired by signs
3: it comes at night in War for the Planet of the Apes? Was Ready Player One influenced by Avatar, Wreck-It Ralph, and The Last Starfighter? Is the Hurricane Heist more influenced by Sharknado or Geostorm? These are the kinds of questions my guest co-hosts and I discuss on my podcast, Piecing It Together. Every week, we look at a new movie and try to figure out what other movies inspired it, whether it's the story, the character development, tone, or even use of music. Every movie was influenced by something that came before, and we want to figure out what. Check out Piecing It Together on your favorite podcast app, or check us out on PiecingPod.com. You can also follow us on social media at PiecingPod. Piecing It Together is a part of the All Points West Podcast Network. Some of our bits and news from this week gonna rattle some of these off pretty quickly here. Uh brett Haley announced the direct a Greece prequel Summer Lovin'. We all know Brett Haley for The Hero, Hearts Beat Loud. What do you guys think? Do we need another Grease? I don't think so, but I'm also here for anything that Brett Haley does because I've liked pretty much almost all of his movies so far. Yeah,
1: his work is great. And I don't mean that to sound like I don't like Grease. I actually do love Grease, but I love Grease as a relic of its time. I don't know that we need more of it. And I say that as someone who loves Grease and Grease too. But yeah, I'm not, I'm not that nostalgic and I need to go back there.
3: I'm also not excited about just kind of Taking existing properties, like I would rather just see Brett Haley do an original musical type of film.
1: Yeah, it's
3: I'll see it, I guess. <laughs> but I'm not, That's the I'm way not things
1: cool. are
0: right now.
3: Uh, Gael Garcia Bernal added to M. Night Shyamalan's newest film. Uh, this is huh, this is interesting in terms of the casting for this one. We have uh, Nikki Amuka Bird, Vicky Creeps, uh, Abby Lee, Ken Lung. Thomas and Mackenzie, Alex Pierre, Eliza Scanlon, and Alex Wolf all attached to Shyamalan's latest. And here's what I'm going to just say about that really quickly. Glass broke me <laughs> because that was the last time I headed into an M. Night Shyamalan film with actual expectations, which the reason why it broke me was because I've headed into M. Night Shyamalan films with expectations before. And I was broken and betrayed time and time and time again. Then I went through a period of time where I was like, I'm not even going to watch M. Night Shyamalan films anymore. And then I saw Split. And Split surprised me as it surprised so many other people. And Glass was then, you know, following a string of disastrous movies. I think the last time I went into an M. Night Shyamalan film with expectations was The Happening. And we all know how that turned out. So I headed into Glass with same kind of expectations and I was so disappointed by it, and I really, really did not like it. I know that that movie has its fans. I totally get it. It just wasn't for me. So I refuse. I refuse, even with this cast attached, to have any expectations of excitement for an M. Night Shyamalan film. I will, I will see it, begrudgingly, but I refuse to get excited over this.
0: Yeah, I'm sort of in the same, somewhat of the same boat, although... I really wasn't on the enthusiastic train with uh, with Split. I thought it was fine, but I did not really think of it like, oh my God, he's back. Like it was a decent movie that was okay. So the Glass didn't necessarily have like a huge drop off for me from his previous film, but I'm still a bit skeptical that he can make a really great movie again. I still don't really find that there's evidence of that.
1: Go ahead, Michael. Go defend your hometown boy. We all know you I want know. to. I know. I was going to say, I'm going to see all these great people around town. It's going to be exciting. <laughs> but, uh, uh, look, I- I've actually, you know, come to reevaluate who I thought Le Chamberlain was. Because uh, when I was growing up and really getting into all these great movies, he was doing stuff like The Last Airbender and, you know, uh, all that other nonsense, like The Happening, Lady in the Water. So I just sort of dismissed him for a while. But I think it was around the time of Split and The Visit and Glass. And I'm like, OK, this guy, you know, is actually more interesting than I give him credit for. Not everything's great, but I like the scale in which he makes his movies and that they're actually written. Not always well written, but like there's a concept there instead of just plugging it into the studio machine. And I sort of respect that. So I will definitely see this, whatever it is. And, you know, I hope he keeps making movies the way he wants to make them even if they're not always great. I like th- that he has the freedom to do what he wants to do with them.
3: Yeah. The new Doug Lyman Tom Cruise film apparently is going to be shooting in space. Of course it is. I thought they were going to reserve this for one of the Mission Impossible sequels that Tom Cruise is doing with Chris McQuarrie. but I guess Tom just wants to get there as soon as he can.
1: <laughs> Don't God. Don't call them to go to space right now. It sounds a lot better than here.
3: Also, too, let me tell you, if Tom Cruise definitely finds a way to go up to space... I mean, and listen, I'm not saying that this is the thing that would put him over the map, but it would it would be definitely be the thing for me that would solidify. Get this guy an honorary Oscar at some point, please. For the love of God. Well, that's going to happen. <laughs> the lengths that he goes to for our entertainment is just unreal. It's unreal. Yep. He is definitely dedicated and we have to at least love him for that. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Denzel Washington and Julia Roberts are set to star in Leave the World Behind, a new Netflix uh, film that they have the uh, rights to from a novel. Uh, Sam Esmail is attached to direct, um, who is adapting the uh, script. And you guys probably know him from Mr. Robot and Homecoming. And Denzel Washington and Julia Roberts, good friends. No surprise there. Um, It wouldn't you know, it's not shocking to hear that they would want to collaborate with each other on a project. Uh, but two actors, heavyweights, two titans of the industry uh, coming together here. Uh, that's pretty exciting. Absolutely. We're back in the 90s. <laughs> <laughs> and last but not least, George Clooney to direct The Tender Bar for Amazon Studios. That's going to be his next directorial uh, project. Screenplay is being done by William Monahan, Oscar winner for The Departed, who. Quite honestly, other than Kingdom of Heaven, like, I don't think he's really written anything of note.
0: Ooh, Mojave. Ooh. It <laughs> was awful.
3: Yeah. So, um, I'm always excited to see what George Clooney is doing, um, even though some of his directorial projects have been a little hit and miss for me over the years. Uh, like, I like the Eyes of March, but the Monuments Men was... Mm.
1: mm Is that the last thing he directed? No, Suburbicon. Oh, Jesus. Well, don't, don't yo,
3: worry. I completely <laughs> forgot that that
1: existed. Holy crap.
3: No I was crap. trying to erase that movie from my memory. Oh, my. I did. I did. I successfully erased Suburbicon from my memory until Michael just said it just now. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Ooh,
1: man, what a mess. He yeah, has a new movie this year at Netflix. I think it's a space movie, uh The Midnight Sky.
3: Yeah, been hearing about that. I don't know what the
1: status is on that, though. And remember, he also directed, it wasn't a movie, but, you know, it was a big directorial effort on his part. He did Catch-22 last year for Hulu. Which, I, I enjoyed that. So, yeah, he's hit or miss. I think Good Night and Good Luck is phenomenal. I really love the Ides of March. Uh, look, I, for him, it's like, you know, if the screenplay is good enough. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I don't always stress that he's great at picking the screenplays for his direct directorial efforts. But who knows? Maybe I'll be wrong. And I just want to... See a little more pizzazz from him as a director.
3: Okay, uh, and now to wrap things up here, some fan questions. Let's go down the list and see what everybody submitted for this week. Isaiah Washington, which aspect of these filmmakers do you admire the most? Their writing or their directing? Coen Brothers,
1: writing. <sighs> That's a tough one. They're so, so good at both. The
3: dialogue yeah. that they give to character actors especially, I, I got. I got to go with writing.
0: I am going to say writing, too, but it is very close. It's not by a lot because I think their their visual storytelling is also incredible as well. But I will yeah, submit that the dialogue and also just the general like story structure is also very good with them.
1: I'm going to say writing as well, even though it's super, super close. I just think of some of these moments in a movie like Hail Caesar when the film reel runs out and it says a divine presence to be shot. I love that. (laughs) And like that's a little bit of both. That's a directorial choice, but they had to write that in. Or the scene in Burn After Reading when Richard Jenkins is talking about his past life as a Greek Orthodox priest in Chevy Chase. Like that's writing right there, of course. But, you know, just a throwaway line that makes that character and just the whole scene in the movie. yeah. The little things that they throw in, I think, you know, could be attributed to writing.
0: Yeah.
3: Brad Bird. Directing. Directing.
0: I would say directing as well.
3: Phil Lord and Chris Miller.
0: Ooh. See, this is another tough one.
3: Directing. I think they're writers. I think that they have like an explosive visual style that screams a little bit of Edgar Wright to me at times. And I think a lot of their directorial choices are very, very smart that help their films to stand out. I'm, I'm of course thinking of the live action uh, 21, 22 Jump Street films, and also how a lot of that has translated over to animation for them. I, I, I gotta go with directing.
0: I, I think I'm going to agree with you. I do really like their scripts, but I also believe that their direction is what really even will elevate their own material. And I think in particularly like the Lego movie, there are so many visual gags just stuffed in that film, like even in the background that are amazing. And I think you can chalk that more up to their directing, even though I really like what they do from a writing perspective as well. Adam McKay.
1: He's a little bit of,
3: uh, 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 this is like the opposite problem. (laughs) Crucify me all you want. Directing.
1: See, I don't think about the serious stuff. I think more about Step Brothers and Talladega Nights and Anchorman. But so much of the humor from those movies, I think, come from the performers in them. Like, it's funny watching Will Ferrell and... So then he
3: has to rein those performances in with his directing.
1: Yeah, that's where I was going with that, absolutely. So his style as a director doesn't always work, but I do think it's his strength of the two when it's on. If I'm forced to
3: pick, I think I will say directing. And Ava DuVernay, last one, directing. Yeah, I would say
1: directing. Yeah, absolutely. Okay.
3: All right, Andrew Purr, what do you think a studio's criteria is before scrapping a theatrical run in favor of a PVOD or streaming option? Is it budget versus expected earnings, or is it more earnings now versus one year from now?
0: Well, I think the budget's always going to be important. If you spend a lot on a movie, you need a lot of money to recoup that investment. And the amount that you make streaming is just not going to be the same as if it was going to be in theaters. And I think that probably is one of the biggest factors that
3: goes into it. You know, you hear these stories about how Tenet needs $800 million in order to make a profit. And that's why we're never going to see that on streaming, because that's just not going to happen. (laughs) You're not going to get that kind of money.
0: That is never going to happen. Like, I know that we have some success stories about premium VOD right now, but they are nowhere near what movies would be earning if they were in theaters. And I think that for all these people are saying, like, releasing just to release all these tent poles on VOD, like, they do not understand the economics behind that decision.
3: And for anyone that's listening right now that has the privilege of getting these movies for free from the studios, publicists and don't have to actually pay in 1999, ask yourself this question. If you did not have that option, would you still pay in 1999 to rent, not own, just rent, to see one of these movies? And when I say one of these movies, I'm not even going to talk about the big temple films. I'm talking like the smaller titles, like Never Really, Sometimes, Always, The Last King of Scotland, St- St- King of Staten Island. Jesus Christ, I did it again. <laughs> I gotta stop doing that, <laughs> or uh, something like Saint Maud, or Promising Young Woman, The Father, starring Anthony Hopkins. And at what point are you going to look and say, "Wow, I've spent a hundred dollars to watch five films, and where does it end?" Because a lot of the times, I think the people I hear that are saying, "Yes, I would be more than willing to pay." uh the $20 to watch this on PVOD or yeah please why don't they just release it on PVOD a lot of times the people i hear saying that are not the people that are actually paying for it so i think it's almost easy for them to say yeah release it on VOD um i know for me i would be very very picky and choosy and i wouldn't i wouldn't do it for everything
0: yeah that's the problem with the these like premium prices is that they're completely justified because you know you need to set it at a certain point in order for it to be feasible for these studios to release these movies but at the same time you have a group of people that rarely go to the movies so they'll never pay that kind of a price for it and the people that would are not going to do it for every single movie that comes out
3: Right, like, the, like it's easy for us in our circles to talk to our friends who share similar likes, interests, and maybe are getting some of these movies uh, as screening links for free. It's very, very easy then for us to get lost in this idea of, uh, yeah, just release it on uh, VOD so other people can watch it. We're watching it, right? When the reality is nobody really in my world, in my life, outside of these film critic circles and everybody on film Twitter they're not paying to watch these. No. And they won't. (laughs) So where is the money to be made then? I mean, you take it wherever you can get right now. And I understand that. But
0: it's to me, this is not something that is sustainable in the long term. This is a very short term solution. But the price point for these movies is not. I, I don't think that's something that they can have going forward for a significant amount of time.
3: Which is why I think the best thing to do is to sell them off to people that have the built-in audiences with their streaming platforms. The Disney Pluses, the Hulus, the Netflixes, the Amazon Studios. Make a little bit of profit, even if it's only, say, $2 million profit on what you originally spent on the damn thing. It's still better than nothing. And I would just try then to stay alive uh, for as long as you can with that profit then, you know, at that point. And maybe I'm wrong in saying that, but you can't hold on to these movies on the shelf forever. That's not a good option either.
0: It's a weird time that we're in right now. (laughs) You got to take what you can get.
3: Scott Kernan, since the expansion in 2009, up to 10 nominees for Best Picture and then the change to, he says eight to nine nominees, but really it's five to uh, 10 uh, in 2011. What would you consider to be the definitive Best Picture Oscar lineup of the last decade? Ooh,
0: Mm. that's a
1: good question. The best lineup of the last decade. Oh, that's good. I am really fond of 2017.
3: I was just thinking that too, in terms of just how, how well-rounded it is. Oh, that's a good choice. Um, I got to... So it definitely is... That is up there. And
1: then I also would go to bat for 2013. Yeah, 2013 is also excellent.
0: Yeah, I think I'm going to agree with 2017. I also remember that was a year where... I think like six movies in that lineup were in my own top 10. So just for me personally, I think that that's the best group of movies.
3: Yeah. Yeah. I definitely like 2017 a lot. I, I would, I, I think I would go with that one. Greg Pace at Greg Pace, Ohio asks, do you think there are any locks for a nomination within movies that have been released so far this year? Oof, he used the L word locks. <laughs>
0: Yeah, it's very, I mean, in normal years, it's difficult to use that word this at this point in the year and much less right now. But I think if I'm going to say anybody
3: is a lock, I think I would say Delray Lindo. I am right there with you, Josh, in terms of acting. If I'm thinking just outside of acting for a second, I think Onward is a lock for animated feature. Yeah, that's what I was going to
1: say. I think that's yeah. the only true lock we've had out of any category. And
3: also, too, if this was a normal year uh, where there's five nominees and, you know, the, we didn't have COVID-19, I don't think I would be saying that. Mm, uh,
0: not a lock. Yeah, I would say that. I would say that it probably would get in still, but using the L word for it at this point in a normal year, probably not.
3: Yeah. David Mitchell Baker asks, uh, which was the better year for Best Picture nominees between these two all-timers? Oh, no. (laughs) 1975, once... uh, I was about to say, once flew over a time in Hollywood. Uh, (laughs) One flew over the cuckoo's nest, Barry Lyndon, Dog Day Afternoon, Jaws, Nashville, or 1976, Rocky, All the President's Men, Bound for Glory, Network, Taxi Driver. Damn you, David Mitchell Baker. Damn you. That's... Yeah. I am going with 1975...
1: You say 75, I say 76. Josh, you're the tiebreaker here.
3: Uh, I'm
0: I'm going to say 75.
1: Yeah.
0: Yeah. I mean, I love a lot of those movies in the 76 lineup too, but I think just overall, I
1: like the 75 lineup just a little bit more. Th- that being said, I wish I could replace Bound for Glory with any movie from 75. <laughs> yeah, that, that's true. <laughs>
3: Jessica at Jess Hartman 22 asks. First acting performance you have a memory of being in total awe of.
0: Hmm.
3: I was in high school. And for me, it was Robert De Niro in Raging Bull.
1: Yeah, that's an interesting question, because obviously we've watched movies for years. But for me, it wasn't until you know I was maybe 13 that I really started paying attention to the art of performances, rather than just watching actors serve the movie, and yes, you know, exactly, having it be subconscious. So the first time I was really aware, wow, this is tremendous acting. I would say uh, after I saw Mamma Mia, that's not my answer. Just bear with me here. After I saw Mamma Mia, that's when I really got into Meryl Streep and all she was doing. And then I went back to see all of her acclaimed films, and seeing Sophie's Choice was when I thought, oh, this is what it's all about.
3: I'm um, actually Michael. It's so funny you say that because. Still, for my money, De Niro in Raging Bull and Streep for Sophie's Choice are like my male, female, all time best performances from any
1: actor or actress like I've ever seen. Yeah, they're, they're terrific. And what he does, you know, of course, he's amazing in all of Raging Bull, but it's those scenes talking in the dressing room in front of the mirror. Like, that's what cements it for me.
0: I think this is kind of a more of like on the sillier side, but it honestly was the first thing that. It, came to, into my mind i really do think that when i saw jim carrey in the mask i i think that that was actually a performance that i thought was just so energetic and full of life and just so entertaining that i think that was like one of the first times i can remember identifying an actor with a role and being appreciative of What they were doing and having an awareness that like their performance was the thing that I was finding such joy in. So, you know, it's not a very serious answer, but I think it's the one that I'm going to go with.
3: All right. Okay. Josh Blumenkrantz asks, what movie are you still holding out hope for to get released this year? All of them. (laughs) Promising Young Woman. Promising
1: Young Woman. Well, Theatrical or not, I would like to see Spielberg's West Side Story sooner than later.
0: Yeah, um, I mean, I'm still waiting for no time to die. I'm growing increasingly skeptical that it will come out this year, but I'm still I'm still trying to be optimistic about it in some uh, capacity.
3: I just can't believe that I've been holding on to the secrets of Promising a Woman since January. It's killing me. Yeah, (laughs) it's really killing me. And I haven't told a soul. And, And, you know, Matt,
0: when you. Went and saw all of those movies at Sundance. At first, I did kind of think like, man, that's
3: like a bit overkill. But looking back on it, probably was the
0: best decision
3: you made this year. It really was. I swear to God, 45 films or whatever it was over the course of that week. I mean, like I I could not be more grateful. <laughs> I really. Yeah,
0: <laughs> I mean, it really kind of paid off for you, considering how things shook out.
3: Seriously, I, I, I definitely look back on that and I say to myself, like, Yeah, you nearly killed yourself doing it, but goddamn, did it really just pay off in the long run for 2020? And, you know, not knowing, obviously, what was coming either, you know?
0: Yeah, it is almost like you had some kind of divine intuition about what was going to happen and that the opportunity to see these movies wasn't going to be available later
3: to be to be completely fair and transparent the real reason why i do that and i do that with every film festival i go to i just try to see as much as i possibly can is because it eliminates me having to ask my day job to leave early you know so i don't have to do it that many times throughout the year when there's a screening i want to go to after work (laughs) so the less times that i can say to my boss hey do you mind if i dip out 30 minutes early that that's a good that's a good thing for me <laughs> yeah all right Ethan may at movie fanatic 200 replace the weakest nominee in your opinion from the categories below and choose who should be there instead the film year is 2009 okay best supporting actor from 2009 we have stanley tucci to lovely bones christopher Plummer to the last station woody harrelson the messenger matt damon to Invictus, and christoph waltz and glorious bastards
1: Oh, that was not a great year, at least no. for this category. I have my answer now.
0: I yeah. mean, I do too, yeah. Um, I would remove Matt Damon for Invictus. I just do not understand that nomination in the slightest. I think it is bizarre that such a nothing performance not only got a nomination but coasted to a nomination too. I, I don't get it. I don't like him in that movie, so easily would remove him. And... Um, I would probably replace him with Christian Mackay in me and Orson Welles.
3: That's a great choice. I love him in that movie so much. Yeah, he's really great. I, too, would replace Matt Damon with Peter Capaldi in In the Loop. Oh,
1: yeah. I love Peter Capaldi in In the Loop also. So the Academy really dropped the ball here because it's not like they didn't have options. There were actually really great options available. Like Stanley Tucci should have been in for Julie and Julia and not the Lovely Bones. And I wish they had done that because I'm making him my choice just because I want to have him in there over Matt Damon. But had they just gone with Stanley Tucci, I would have been able to say Fred Malamud for a serious man. Or Richard Kind for a serious man. Or Alec Baldwin and It's Complicated, or Alfred Molina in An Education. It's such a good year, and I can't believe they went with this pitiful lineup. So, yeah, I'm thinking on Matt Damon to put in another Stanley Tucci, but they should have done the right Stanley Tucci in the first place.
3: Best cinematography, The White Ribbon, Inglorious Bastards, The Hurt Locker, Harry Potter and the Half-Blood Prince, and Avatar.
1: Now, this is a good lineup. This is really good.
3: I agree. I'm actually struggling with what to choose right now. (laughs)
0: Uh,
3: I'm not struggling. I would remove the winner i would remove avatar uh, so okay in regards to that like i get it because so much of it is reliant on visual effects for the visual aspect of it but the way that they shot it and the camera technology i believe that's why they ultimately won if you ask oh, me i i get it but i also think that
0: looking at all these other nominees i am i think that they have just Genuinely more impressive work to look at like there is an a technological innovation with Avatar certainly but it just in terms of like actual cinematography being used to enhance the story I find that the other ones are much better than Avatar from my own personal perspective
3: and i mean for the record i too am releasing uh, uh, i am too replacing avatar but i i want to go for bad to bad for it because it is a strong lineup and i i i don't i'm not shitting over it by replacing it is what i guess i guess no I'm saying. but
0: it is the number five in that lineup
3: for me yeah um
0: but in terms of what i would replace it with i would actually go with what is my personal winner that year for cinematography and that is where the wild things are oh i like that really? oh wow I love Where the Wild Things are. It's one of my favorite movies of all time.
1: Yeah, that's a really good movie. Matt, what are you replacing Avatar with? Uh, come back to me. Okay, well, I am not replacing Avatar, even though I understand the argument why it should be taken out. Uh, I really like how this movie looks, but unfortunately I have to drop it for the context of this game. And that is Harry Potter and the Half-Blood Prince.
3: Oh, no, it's the best looking yeah. Harry Potter film. And that it would is, be my winner of this, of this lineup for me.
1: <laughs> it, it's really great. And I don't begrudge it anything. I'm so glad it was nominated. But it's just for the context of the game, it falls out in favor of a serious man. It's good work, too. OK, so
3: I would replace Avatar with Road.
1: OK, that's an interesting yeah. one.
0: Yeah, I can go with that.
3: All righty. Uh, next category is actor. And for there, we have Jeremy Renner for The Hurt Locker, Morgan Freeman for Invictus, Colin Fur of a single man, George Clooney up in the air and Jeff Bridges for
1: Crazy Heart. Do we just say it on the count of three? Because I think we're all going to have the same answer and replacement potentially.
0: Well, I know. I think we'll all have the same answer of who we're going to kick out.
3: <laughs> yeah, I think I think I think uh, we're all going to say Morgan Freeman for Invictus. Yes. Yeah. And we're all going to replace him with Michael Stuhlbarg for A Serious Man. Correct.
0: You know, I, I do love him, but I actually have another choice that I would rank just slightly above him. Which is? um, uh, That would be Tahar Rahim for A Prophet.
3: Oh, I love that choice. Good choice. Ooh. My, uh, my other runner-up after uh,
1: Stuhlbarg is Charlton Copley for District 9. He's really good. I was going to say my runner-up after Michael Sulebarg was Matt Damon for The Informant. He's really funny in that movie. I like him in that one.
3: And another good performance from this year is Sam Rockwell in Moon. God help me, you're right. <laughs> I forgot that that was 2009. Oh, there were so many options. Yep. <laughs> All right, best original screenplay. Up, A Serious Man, The Messenger, Glory's Bastards, and The Hurt Locker. Another good lineup. Yeah, I agree. That's tough. That's really tough. Ah. Oh.
1: Mm, So I'm taking out The Messenger Even though I think that's a really really good movie And I'm replacing it with It's Complicated (laughs) You fucking
3: (laughs) would You would
0: Uh, I will also take out The Messenger Even though I agree with you Michael It is a good screenplay And I will replace it With Bright Star (sighs) That's good.
1: That's good. Matt I'm gonna be disappointed if you don't say the one that was my runner up, because I think you really like this movie.
3: I would replace The Messenger with 500 Days of Summer. There it is. Perfect. Yeah. Okay. I was hoping someone would say it. That
0: would be on my list, too. But I was hoping that, <laughs> that Matt was going to say it so that I could say something else.
3: And yeah. I also love that that movie has gotten reevaluated over the last couple of years with a totally different spin on it, too, which has been uh,
1: fascinating to read about. Yeah. Yeah, that's great. You also had like broken embraces and Adventureland, And some people like me might say funny people, but it was a strong year for original screenplay. 2009 was great in general. The Academy just didn't get the memo about it. Best adapted screenplay. We have up in the air in the loop and education district
3: nine and precious
0: without any hesitation. I would remove district nine. I'm sorry. I'm actually somebody that doesn't really like that movie very much. I think it's okay, but I I don't really not a big fan of it personally. And I will go to bat once again
1: for Where the Wild Things Are. I am also taking a District 9, even though I actually do like the movie, believe it or not. I think that's a really interesting film. But I'm replacing it with my personal winner, Julia Julia. And I, too, am taking out
3: District 9, even though I adore this nomination. And I love that it cracked the lineup here. Uh, And I'm replacing it with Fantastic Mr. Fox.
1: Uh, Yeah, that's a really great one.
3: Best Actress. Meryl Streep, Julian Julia, Gabaret Sibeday for Precious, Carrie Mulligan for an Education, Helen Miren for The Last Station, and Sandra
1: Bullock for the blind side. Hmm. So I love Sandra Bullock. Love that she has an Oscar because she's wonderful as a performer. Not for that movie. So taking her out and replacing her with see, it's a tricky one because I don't believe this person belongs in Lead Actress, but I like to follow the campaigning rules and the Academy guidelines for how things work that year. So I'm replacing her with Marion Cotillard for nine.
0: Mm. Yeah. I like her in that movie, but I just cannot say that she's a leading actress. I think she is fully supporting. Um, I, I'm actually going to remove Helen Mirren from this lineup. I get everything with Sandra Bullock, but I also think that, to any degree that the blind side works at all is solely because of Sandra Bullock. And that alone, I would say I can keep her. I w- she wouldn't be in my lineup, but for that Herculean task alone, I think I can respect it. Whereas Helen Mirren is just sort of fine in The Last Station. I don't have any real strong opinions about it. And I would replace her, I
3: think, with Maya Rudolph and Away We Go. I love that choice. Oh, That's good. Oh, tough, 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 tough. Yeah, I would remove Sandra Bullock as well. I I agree. I still to this day, I don't know how she won. Um, Actually, now that I'm thinking about it. Really? You don't know? Was, yeah. It's <laughs> no, I. Clear. I know why. I just don't think it's a good like it's I don't think it's an Oscar worthy performance. I think it's a good performance, just not an Oscar worthy one. Um, I
1: would replace with Emily Blunt for the young Victoria. Oh, well, I thought you were going to say Melanie Laurent for *Inglorious Bastards.
3: See, like I wish that she had like a more standout scene because everybody always kind of points to the um, the table scene with uh, Kristoff and how she acts in, in, in that scene opposite him. But. I, I just wish she had a little bit more to do in that movie. If I'm yeah, I, I, I like her. She makes my personal lineup that year. But I I genuinely like I, I just want Emily Blunt to get that damn nomination at some point. I know it's yeah. crazy. I mean, Melanie, uh, Melanie Laurent also makes my personal lineup.
1: But like with Marion Cotillard,
0: they are both in my supporting actress lineup.
1: As they should be. I don't disagree with that. I really don't. But it's just yeah. this thing I have that, you know, everything needs to line up with the way that history happened. And then last but not least, uh, Best Director,
3: Jason Reitman up in the air, Lee Daniels for Precious, Quentin Tarantino in Glorious Bastards, James Cameron for Avatar, Catherine Bigelow for Hurt Locker. Straight five all throughout the entire season. Never uh, differed from these five. Yeah. It's probably your top five in Best Picture as well. Agreed.
0: All right. I'm going to piss people off. I'm doing it. I'm kicking out Tarantino. Whoa. Yeah, uh, Glorious Bastards is a movie that I like, but I do not love it like many, many other people do. I know that for many, it's his best movie. I have some issues with that film, like a lot of later uh, half Tarantino. And yeah, I'm going to remove him. And sorry to sound like a broken record, but I'm going to replace him with uh, Where the wall Things Are for Spike Jones.
1: So back in 2010, uh, the three of us didn't know each other back then, but... I was a big fan of Up in the Air. I loved that movie so much back in 2009 because I just thought, you know, it was this movie of the moment and I liked that it was a character piece and sort of felt like a throwback to those James L. Brooks movies of the day and I was a big fan of it. Looking at it 10 years later, I like the performances and the writing and I like a lot of elements of it, but I'm not nearly as high on it as I was a decade ago. So for that reason, I'm taking Jason Reitman out. And I'm replacing him with Joel and Ethan Cohen for A Serious Man. It's a good choice. And I, too, am taking Jason Reitman out.
3: I wish that Up in the got a Best Film Editing nomination. Yeah. Because I think somebody editing in that film is just really, really fantastic. I would rather see it get that nomination over Reitman for director. Um, and I'm going to replace him with Neil Blomkamp for District 9 because I still, to this day, am amazed at what he was able to accomplish uh, with that small of a budget on that film. And just the overall vision uh, for that movie in general. Okay. That'll do it here uh, for the even May segment of the show. And then last but not least, final question. Rob Montoya is asking us, with the weekly announcements of 2020 releases being pushed back to 2021, what are your thoughts on either pushing Oscars back as well a year to, in this case, it would be, 2022? Or should they stick with the April 2021 show? Stick with it. We
1: still have movies. Let's honor them.
0: Exactly. Yes, there are still films coming out. They're not in theaters, but there's a lot of great stuff to see. And, you know, it'll be different, but everything is different this year. And I think that running to the impulse of just, oh, there's nothing in theater, so, like, stuff doesn't count is kind of... I find very disrespectful to the movies that are coming out right now, and it's a different landscape, and I think that we should honor those films that actually committed to being released and being seen by people, and there's a lot of great stuff out there still to see.
3: I agree with both of your points, but (laughs) I am very, very worried with some of the impulsive actions that the Academy has done over the last couple of years due to declining ratings. I am worried that they will make a rash and impulsive business decision that disregards the films, the art, the tradition, and the fact that, you know, we do have a lot of movies to go around this year and we still have more coming. I am worried that they are going to make that call at some point. I'm worried about it, too. And I won't feel good about it. For a while, because with the way how quickly everything is changing nowadays, uh, this is something that's going to be hanging, I think, over my head for months, Um, because you see, for example, like how long they wait to the last minute to possibly or possibly not have a host on their show. You know, they could wait all the way till the last minute to decide if they are going to have a show or not, period. And I also think, too that a lot will have to um, do with how well the Emmys uh, do their award show and how well that performs ratings-wise because if that show is a success and it pulls uh, everything off and the ratings are decent, I I, I will feel better about it. But if that show is a disaster, ratings are a disaster, uh, that's when I will worry the most about an impulsive rash decision on their part.
0: Yeah, I am living in constant fear of that as well, Matt. Um, I think that that is something that they could very well do because it is dumb and short-sighted, so it would be very fitting in line with Academy decisions lately. But I would dread it completely because it, it would just seem like it would send the message that you don't count unless you are in theaters. And I understand that that's where we all would most like to see these movies, but we don't have that option right now. And I don't think that should eliminate consideration of movies that are being released on other platforms just because we don't have them in theaters at the moment. Like, they'll come back at some point, but that's not what we have right now. And let's embrace that instead of just saying they don't count and just
3: pushing everything to next year. I just find that to be so disheartening if that were to actually happen. It's also one thing for us to discuss when what the academy thinks is an Oscar movie and what is not an Oscar movie. It's another thing to actually then have evidence of them legitimately pointing at it and saying, "Yeah, we don't consider these movies Oscar movies." Yeah. And that is truly disrespectful and truly awful. It would hurt me on such a personal level. I wouldn't I wouldn't know what to do with myself. Like we would have validation of that belief. You know what I mean?
0: Yeah, exactly. You know, it wouldn't just be kind of a rumor or just something that seems to be in the ether. We would have actual proof that they don't consider these films that release on streaming platforms to be actual movies.
1: You know, I I really think they're going to stick with this date. I I don't think it's going to change. I think they made the announcement for April. And whether the show is in person or not, we still have to see. But I think there is going to be something called the Oscars next year. To honor the movies that we had this year, however many there are.
0: Yeah, because see, the problem is also if they announce a, a new date, and like maybe they'll combine these two years. That then means all these other shows and precursors have to change too. So, like just because the Oscars make a change, it's not like they're done. Like they have a ripple effect throughout all these other things that you know, as we get further and further towards the end of the year and or the end of the, this deadline. Uh, It's going to be much more difficult to to do
3: all these changes. I have a feeling that when we come back next week, we will have more information regarding this because new information is being presented on a daily basis. And look, guys, we spoke for an hour and a half about movies. People still give a shit about movies, I guess.
0: Exactly. Yes, there is still... There are still movies to see. There are still things to talk about. Yes, they are not in theaters, but that doesn't mean there aren't great films to discover and recognize their achievements.
3: Let's just hope that the Academy feels the same way as well.
0: Well, they make the best popular films, so who knows?
3: Yeah.
1: <laughs> Michael, where can they find you on the Internet? You can find me on Twitter at mschwartz95.
3: Josh Parham? I am on Twitter at jrparham. And I am over at Next Best Picture. Thank you so much, everyone, for listening to episode 204 of the Next Best Picture podcast. You can subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Google Play, Stitcher, TuneIn, Player FM, Acast, CastBox, also on Spotify. Be sure to leave us a review on Apple Podcasts and let us know what you think of the show. We really appreciate the feedback there. If you leave us a comment, rate us five stars. It helps our show to get discovered and get seen, which... Believe it or not, during this time, we really, really would appreciate that. And also, if you are a fan of the content that we provide, head on over to Patreon, where for $1 minimum a month, you can get some exclusive podcast content from us. Our 2014 retrospective is starting to wind down at the moment. We have four films left to review and they are the four big ones interstellar gone girl boyhood and birdman so definitely subscribe to the patreon for one dollar minimum a month if you want to hear those reviews in full thank you so much for listening as always and we shall see you all next time